Welcome to Studio Stories, a podcast that explores the backstory of some of our best-known music. We talk to artists, producers and engineers about how their role in the creative process helped bring some of New Zealand's favourite albums to life. I'm Dean Young, and in this episode, it was 2010 when we were to hear the first ominous rumblings out of the Waikato of a band that four short years later would release an album that would peak at number one on the official New Zealand music chart and be certified platinum a year later. That band is Devilskin, made up of bassist Paul Martin, drummer Nick Martin, guitarist Tony Nail Vincent and vocalist Jenny Skewlander. And these are the studio stories behind that wildly successful debut album, We Rise. Hey there, this is Paul Martin. I play bass guitar and write songs for the band Devilskin and um, very stoked to be able to share some stories with you and some insight into the recording of our album, We Rise. We kind of got together because we're all sort of fans of each other's bands and we'd, we'd see each other at gigs and I was in playing a few gigs with World War Four. Nail was with Chuggernaut, Jenny was with Slipping Tongue, um, Nick was still in, in school. My name is Nick Martin, I play drums in Devilskin, um, I also record the odd um, piece of keyboards or piano, um, I don't sing and I am our bassist Paul Martin's son. Dad had just started this band, and I remember him kind of thrashing this scratched-up uh, demo EP by a band called Slipping Tongue, and he would play it every damn day on the stereo, and he'd go, check out this girl's voice, man, you've got to listen to this girl's voice. And it, it was a bit more up my alley. I was into the more aggressive, kind of faster, harder kind of stuff at the time. And I thought it was wicked, but... Um, he was talking about how this band's just kind of split up and he's going to track her down and try and jam with her. And I thought, yeah, whatever, Dad, yeah, cool, 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 whatever. I'm, you know, I'm th- uh, 13, 14 years old at the time. When I found out Jenny wasn't doing anything, you know, approached her and, you know, after a little while, our pers- persistence paid off and grabbed nail and um, had a rehearsal. And I decided I said I'd play um, bass for just the one rehearsal because I wanted to play guitar in this band you see and I had this big idea for it anyway um so yeah here I am um years later still uh playing the bass guitar through a guitar rig (laughs) but uh, yeah it all came together quite organically that first night we we um we wrote the very first night we wrote Little Pearls Fade and um Until You Bleed just on the spot. So uh, there was a connection, there was a chemistry straight away. We, we all felt and um, just felt really good. Yeah, so they were jamming for about a year and they got some songs down. He goes, I check out my new band songs. And I kind of went, hey, cool, Dad, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I, I knew that it was kind of aligned with the kind of stuff that I listened to in my spare time as well. Um, and he approached me maybe about a year, just under a year into – um, the band since since their first jam, I guess, and they'd written half a dozen songs and they had done maybe half a dozen shows just in Hamilton. 
We had um, Rob McConnell was um, playing drums for us at that stage. He, he was a mate who was just had been playing covers for years and years and years and dying and dance stuff, you know. As we're evolving, we're developing these songs, and then after a yeah a couple of years, um, Nick replaced Rob, and Nick was um, fifteen when he joined the band, uh, and he said, "Hey, our drummer uh, Rob has." Um, just been bumped up in a surgery waiting list. So he was waiting for major surgery on his shoulder from an accident that he had years and years and years ago. Um, And dad said, we've got these shows booked and he suddenly has to have this very major surgery. And so he can't do the gigs. So um, here are the six songs that we play. Uh, We're playing in Tauranga this night and Rotorua the next night. Um, And yeah, I can see by your face, it wasn't really a question. He was kind of just telling me that this is what I was going to do. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I've, I've sound checked for Dad's other band, World War Four before. I dragged him along to um, the big day out when World War Four played in um, 2009 at Ericsson Stadium. And um, I grabbed 13-year-old Nick and got him up to, to play. We had this big sort of drum intro to a song. And um, Nick was on stage with a, with a floor tom smacking that at 13 and I uh, didn't know at the time but he was the, he was the youngest ever artist to, to ever play the big day out and see I did those two shows and I was absolutely mortified I was 15 years old he just man he just took to it so easily um, he just really had so much energy and gave a lot to the songs and um, we developed some cool new stuff together and it just felt right felt good and then we had a Battle of the Bands competition, um, I think a fortnight later, and pretty much after we won that competition, um, Dad kind of approached me one night after a band meeting that he had drove someone out somewhere else for, and he came back and he said, hey, um, you know, Rob isn't going to stay in the band. Would you like to be a full-time member of Devilskin? But honestly, when he when he joined the band, uh, you know, it was just like having another accelerator. We just we just took off, um, and he yeah, he just he's just sort of been such a huge part of the songwriting and 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 every part of everything really. The production, he's, he takes a really big role in the production as well, and the sound of everything. So yeah, he's it's been great to watch him grow. I tell you, yeah, it's the coolest feeling. We never predicted that. Um, you know, the three years after I would join would be just up and up and up. I really didn't think I was going to tick any of those boxes that I was ticking in 2014, 2015 until I was about 40 years old. And here I am kind of checking all these things off my bucket list, essentially, before I'm hitting 21. I try not to be too humble about what, what are facts. You know, I hear the the rest of the band say, when other people have asked them, you know, how did you come to replacing a 50-year-old drummer with a 15-year-old drummer? And because that's a that's a, a massive thing for any band to do, let alone a band comprised of seasoned veterans. You know, Jenny had at least 10 solid years of recording and touring under about Nail had 20, Paul had 30. Um, I thought it was a super, but I was blown away when they asked because I thought, you know, uh, are they just kind of giving the kid a shot? They're not taking this band too seriously. We'll just jam out. Or did they actually see something in me? And looking back on it now and kind of thinking of how they would answer this question as well, 
I think they were very inspired by having someone who is 10 years younger than the next youngest member in the band. And, you know, the stuff that was influencing me at that time was very different to what any of the other three were listening to. So it was like another kind of um, corner covered. Um, we signed with um, Music Management Inc., James Southgate, and we we courted him basically, old school styles. We because we talked to him, but he wasn't going to come down from Auckland to look at this bogan band from the Waikato. So, yeah, we, we basically went and got him, and um, and um, got him a motel for the night. Says, right, come to the gig, and yeah, signed us that night after seeing us live. Yeah, we're stoked, and it really did. Things started happening. Well, uh, yeah, I'm Clint Murphy, and I'm a producer, engineer, and mixer. Um, and on the Devilskin We Rise record, yeah, I did all those things: produced, recorded, and mixed. Basically, James Southgate, who was their manager, reached out to me, and uh, you know, I worked with him in the past on various records, and he thought. Uh, that I'd be perfect for the for the job, really. But I mean, I mean, it's a it's a kind of a funny story in a way because I was in the UK at the time, um, and I came over to do another record, which I won't name names, uh, because. I started this record um, and the songs with this particular band weren't quite ready, weren't quite up to scratch. I really sort of like, you know, let them know that it wasn't quite ready and they got quite offended. And within a day or two, I actually got fired from the record. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was sitting around basically, you know, in New Zealand, you know, supposed to be making this record for three months. And that's when I got the call from James saying, hey, what are you up to? And I was like, well, actually... Clint had, had done some recording with the Feelers and James manages them also. And, um, yeah, and uh, I'd sort of heard of Clint through his work. He did a wee bit with um, Eight Foot Sativa. I think either Clint or Eight Foot got Paul to come down to the studio during the, I think it was during their mixing sessions or during their last tracking, the last days of tracking sessions. I think that's where he kind of got to know Clint and watched him in his environment. And I remember dad saying he gets the guys to record these songs. And then when it's a great take, he just moshes around the room. But um, yeah, he was, he was um, basically through James and Ed heard of us and saw how excited James was. And he was really excited to, to get out there and make a name for himself as well. You know, he wanted a meaty band to get his, to get his teeth into and um, everything just lined up nicely. He was on board straight away. He made an effort to get to know everyone in the band as individuals and really climb into our heads as individuals and as a collective and as a band. And really, he again, he believed in the songs. He believed that he could do them justice. So James sent me a bunch of demos and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time listening and thinking about, you know, what could be changed and ultimately you know, which songs to choose. Uh, from there, I basically headed down to a studio in Hamilton. I can't remember the name of it, but it was uh, a place that um, that they they knew. And, yeah, we just basically worked on the arrangements and parts. Oiling every nut and bolt and greasing every nipple. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then when we got Clint involved, um, you know, we streamlined it again. And 
he got to know our songs and the way we played and, and um, came down to rehearsals, came to gigs, and that was really good to have him involved with that. We didn't want to just turn up and he'd never seen us before. He didn't do this very much because by the time we were at this point, the songs were coming up four or five years old. Some of them were a bit newer, but these were songs that we'd been trying and, I guess, testing in a live sense for years. It was a couple of days we did that. Um, it kind of, yeah, just basically, you know, finalised a few of the sort of the basic arrangement things. And then um, when we went into the studio, eventually we kind of honed in on some of those um, changes that we'd made. He he could see and tell that we had these songs down and that we knew what we wanted them to be. Um, we did take some of his advice on board, but not in the sense that it really dramatically changed any of the songs. Of course, that would be a huge, you know, really strong collection of songs, cool riffs. Uh, you know, I could tell that, you know, Nick the drummer had some great fresh ideas. And uh, I mean, ultimately, Jenny's vocals, you know, are super strong, are powerful. Um, you know, I, I, I knew that I could really push her and work on some great melodies and, and layering up harmonies and vocal productions. So, yeah, I mean, you know, from the songs that I was sent, I was sort of, you know, we were pretty much, you know, 80% there with, with most of it. You know, they've done a great job of, of writing the songs. They just really need a bit of arrangement tweaks and, and really just choosing the right songs, you know, because they, uh, like with any record, if we're doing a 10 or 12 song record, I like to get 15, you know, to 20 songs to choose from. And that way you get a much stronger record. We all spend a lot of time um, referencing sounds from different albums and, and just making little short lists of stuff that we liked, you know, and, and tones that grabbed us. Um, um, and also mixes that we liked and producers that we liked um, and the albums that we liked, really. And we just sort of sat all together, spent time with Clint, and, and we talked about stuff like that. And... Um, Basically, what it came down to was let's record the band, and and then as you are sort of thing. So bring your gear and and record just you just record how you are, and and um, that was the best foundation for starting starting off. I think you know we jumped up into York Street, um, essentially just recording scratch tracks live in a room together um, of each of the songs that didn't already have versions that we could record against. I think we might have done maybe eight or nine songs in York Street about a week before we started um, for the For Reels tracking, I call it. Um, we were actually the last album to record there. There you go. So, um, yeah, end of an era for that place, and it was cool for us to, to be there. You know, we wanted to record properly. We definitely had ideas and concepts for the songs and and um, different arrangements we wanted to do and, and obviously, you know, time to spend on the songs. So we're excited as hell. It was the last record 
at York Street. Let's say that it was the last. It was supposed to be the last. Um, it was over Christmas time. So, and I knew Jeremy McPike really well, who was a studio owner. You know, I'd worked there for years, and he gave me, you know, a great deal and just let me have the keys to the place. And yeah, it was it was great to be back there because I I hadn't been back for a long time. You know, I was living in the UK. We didn't want to rush this, and even though it'd been a few years in the making, writing the songs. Um, we really want to take our time and, and get it right with um, the songs that we recorded. And we felt there were some stories to tell and there were some, some things that we just wanted to get out of our system and, and um, get down on, on our album, you know. I think it's in the title, man. And I remember us coming, you know, landing on the title for the album We Rise, which was, it was named after a song called We Rise that we had written at the time that didn't make the cut for the, it didn't make the track listing. Um, And we just thought it was really apt for the situation that we were in. It just was kind of the the concept of ascension. Um, For me, it was the first record and uh, I wanted to make sure that I captured the essence of the band without too much programming and additional parts um, with the exception, of course, uh, of the sort of additional vocal layering and things like that. You know, I knew her voice was, you know, powerful live and that any layering that I did wouldn't really impact them being able to pull it off live. Um, so I think in the back of my mind, I just wanted to make sure there wasn't too much trickery um, involved. And I just, yeah, I think, you know, they were just keen for big riffs and, you know, big grooves and, and big vocals. And I think I, I think from that first pre-production se- uh, session, I kind of earned their trust straight up just by some of the changes I'd made and things like that. So they kind of, well, for memory, they kind of let me run with it a bit readily. The way that I do pretty much all my records is is not a live thing. Um, you know, I like to, you know, track the instruments individually. But initially in the first stage, yes, it is live. Everyone's set up, they're playing. So after our first pre-production sessions, um, you know, I get into the studio, we all set up, everyone's got their amps going, everyone plays live. And the idea is that we can uh, hone, you know, the tempo, we can listen back to the new arrangements that we made and just do any sort of tweaking at that point where we've sort of said, yes, this is the right tempo. This is the right structure. Um, what I usually do is get everyone to play really tightly to a click and, and the kind of guitars, vocals, um, bass all becomes the guide tracks then. And then basically then Jen gets to go home. We use his scratch tracks and just go over and over till we get really good bass and drum uh, takes, and then um, it, it just sort of came together really, really quickly. That it was easy to get a great sound there, um, and we didn't spend a hell of a lot of time just tweaking stuff. It just sort of naturally sounded great, um, and yeah, the 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 bass and the drum parts flew together quite easily, and we could spend more time uh, on Nail's guitar and getting his sound right and um, experimenting with with layers of things. Um, different sounds, different amps. We tried everything because we could. We we had the um, the luxury of taking our time, I guess, and we did. We we although you know Clint wasn't slow; he was pretty damn fast. And you know, it, it's amazing watching some of these engineers work. You know, they just bang, quick, and it's done. 
I used to be a drummer. I used to play. Um, I'd like to play again, to be honest, but I just sort of, you know, the producing thing took over and I think I recorded myself too many times and realized that I wasn't that great. So uh, Nick, on the other hand, is a great drummer. You know, the fact that he was 17 um, didn't really, it wasn't really an issue. You know, he played drums really, really well. He knew how to get great sounds. Um, you know, uh, Clint took the time with him, uh, being a, a, I think he's a drummer himself, but yeah, took the time with Nick, and you know they they just came up with man this magic, you know, getting the sounds together. We were just listening to the drum sounds, and it was just oh freakish. I'm pretty certain it was my drum kit at the time, which was a oh god, I can't even remember exactly what it's called. It was a Mapex. I've still got it. It wasn't even a flash drum kit, man. It was like a two thousand dollar kit brand new with five pieces so it's nothing special but it was like my newest kit and so i was really stoked on it one rack tom two floor toms and cymbals was mostly mine i'm pretty sure we used um some of york street's zildjian um dark customs because those are studio cymbals snare drum was a ludwig black beauty owned by greg haver who went on to produce Devilskin's third album. And that snare drum in particular, that was really inspiring for me because, you know, I, I grew up playing a snare drum that was older than me. And so um, getting a hold of this beautiful, shiny steel drum, and it's a jazz drum as well. It was it was made for jazz. And then I think 30 years after it was invented, someone decided to put it on a rock record and went, oh my God, this is the perfect rock drum. A lot of people get, you know, stuck in the ways of, oh, it's got to be done like this, you know. So uh, yeah, he was open to any suggestions. Sometimes we broke the kit up into separate parts so we could get different sounds for the top kit compared to the bottom kit. Yeah, man, I was 17. I didn't know how to, I was just going hard. I wanted to be fast. I wanted to hit hard. It wasn't anything crazy going on. Going in the studio and doing We Rise was um, a bit uh, testing for me just in the sense of I wasn't used to punching in. I, I was perfectly capable of doing it, but I wasn't used to playing the same one song but spending 30 minutes to get through the whole thing once. So Clint and, and then Simon, who did our latest album, they would they both would want to try and get, ideally, well, in a, in a producer's perfect world, you'd just play it right the first go and, and move on. Um, but no one's that good. Well, I've heard some people are that good, but I'm not that. I wasn't that good, that's for sure. Um, so they would hope for maybe two or three solid playthroughs the whole song one take and then we would go through part by part section by section so you know um we'd do the verse and then playing into the chorus and then do the chorus and playing into the next verse and dropping in all the fills and you you got to play leading into it and then coming out of it so that you can get the symbol bleeds right and everything so um i just feel bad for uh nikki portman who had to edit all those takes together because there were a, there were a lot we're all really tired it's like 11 o'clock at night been here for 12 hours the cool thing about him and even 
today, you know, as far as I'm aware, or when I've worked with him in recent times, is very open to ideas, you know, even, you know, different recording techniques. You know, the the clearest example that I could think of, I guess, would be um, the song Burning Tree. Yeah, that was... Um... I mean, that was kind of the only track really that was, let's say, not like a typical Devilskin, um, you know, recording. And, you know, they, I mean, you could say it was maybe the trickiest track to get right. Um, after the first chorus, you've got some really crushed up, um, delayed, it sounds like electronic drums that just kind of it's just like a kick snare pattern going through and there's a lot of delay on it. it sounds glitchy and kind of weird Here I am. that was just me playing the kick kick and snare but he just grabbed this track and just warped it and crushed it up and he showed me a um, Bjork song of all artists and he goes this is what I'm going to do with the drum sound essentially and I went Devilskin inspired by Bjork, you know, cool. I'm all about it. Let's 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 do it. I had this idea of this Bjork thing, and you know, wanted it to sound quite different. And um, but you know, once they they kind of heard it and you know got the whole vibe of it, I think they pretty much jumped on board. And Clint's all about his Brucey bonuses as well. You can never, if you nail a take and perfect it, and you're like, yep, that was it. That's going on the record. You'd always just hear him in your ear go. Let's get a Brucey bonus. You just get one more, you know, just in case. He, he just works, works, works hard, um, doesn't stop. Hands were bleeding on that first album by the end of it. And he was just still giving it everything, you know, and he'd, he'd learnt a lot. And that's, that's our biggest and most listened to song, Elvis Presley Circle Pit. He named it as well, between him and Jenny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just what happens when you leave Nick and Jenny in charge of naming a song. And, and it was just a working title that stuck, you know, sometimes they do. Yeah, Elvis Presley Circle But like I said, it was the first song that the band wrote after I joined. Um... And we had the song, you know, we had the structure of it, we had the riffs and stuff, and I think the others went away to the bathroom and Jen and I just kind of looked at each other and went, what's it called? We need a name to remember this by. And we're like, the Elvis Presley Circle Pit. Ha ha, yeah, that's hilarious, sweet. Oh, yeah, that won't stick. At the time, and like, um, you know, the the kick rhythm of that song, I remember when we first wrote it 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 was going to be the whole thing was going to be different like i said i was listening to like these crazy rhythmic polyrhythmic genty bands at the time and so i wanted the the rhythm to be like speeding up and slowing down so instead of i wanted it to be like you know like doubling up and stuff then it came to recording it and i was humbled by that pretty quickly uh, because I couldn't do it. It was kind of like, nah, it just carries more weight when it's just that one kind of, it's almost maddening just how, you know, the notes don't change for a long time and it's just repetitive rhythm and it's got this big space in it as well. Um, and, and I think it just became this hypnotic kind of rhythm. And when you, you know, as soon as we decided to record an album and we had that song in the arsenal, we went, that's, that's the opener. We'd all learned a lot, and that's that's the thing with 
uh, recording. I mean, we had all recorded previously with plenty of other bands and stuff, but it's always a whole new adventure every single time. Neil is the biggest Marshall fan in the world and so is Paul to be honest so it was a bit of a no-brainer it was you know for me it was their sound that was the sound they love but uh, yeah basically end of the day it's the it's the Les Paul Marshall combo that's his buzz and he wanted to experiment with a few different guitars as well which gave nice textures to everything we didn't want every song sounding the same and, and different songs called for different things just finished tracking a pretty much Use just about all these guitars except for except, except for that one <laughs> and the bass Paul was using on it earlier. Oh, that one, that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, he 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 definitely knows what he wants out of guitar sound, and he spends a lot of time to get it just right. We had a bunch of different heads to try, and we we a b something like four heads. I dragged up my blooming old '77 Master Volume and. Um, but the guts of it, yeah, guts of it was just his his rig. You know, I, I'm a big fan of like combining sounds or, um, you know, like not just saying, hey, it's got to be Marshall. You know, sometimes it could be a combination of a Marshall and Orange, you know, mixed together. Um, you know, and I think that's pretty much what it was most of the time. It was, it was mainly the Marshall with maybe a few overdubs from some of the amps that would have been at York Street. There's layers, um, especially for the guitar. Clint pulled out the secret weapon, what was this tiny little battery-driven um, cigarette box guitar amp. There you go. It's, it's a little fuzzy little guitar amp with a tiny little two-inch speaker in it. And um, holy crap, you know, you record it properly and bury it up there in the mix and it sounds like incoming thunder. With the bass rig, um, you know, Clint says, what do you want your, your bass to sound like? And I went, you're joking. And he goes, what do you want your bass to sound like? I says, I want to sound like my bass, man. <laughs> come to the gigs, you know, come to rehearsal, make it sound like that. It's uh, an, an aggressive tone that I just can't seem to replicate with anything else that I try. I don't know what it is. I've tried some of the best amps and made them sound like mud and then uh, I plug back into my old guitar gear and boom, it's right there. Bass-wise, I'm, I'm quite keen on, on my distortion. Um, so it was, I th I'm pretty sure it was, you know, the DI going to Sans amp and using um, Paul's Marshall 4x12. I quite like a 4x12 for the, for the um you know, I guess for the for the grit, and then possibly an Ampeg SVT as well. So that sort of combination of three signals on the bass, and yeah, it just yeah flew together really nicely, and um, yeah, it was good to be able to spend time on the guitars, and then of course the vocals after that. We, I would say for 90% of the time, the three of us, Paul, Nail and I, are just as blown away and gobsmacked by her talent as anyone else who hears her. Yeah, I mean, Jenny's, you know, a vocal force, really. She's She's got so much, uh, so much range, you know, and depth and everything, and she's really open to trying ideas and really 
uh, works well when you kind of push her right out of her comfort zone. She's got this blooming insane gift for melodies. You know, she can she she can sing a freaking recipe for goulash out of the Woman's Weeklies and make you cry. We don't know how she does it. We don't know where it comes from. We have, you know, been sitting in a room chucking riffs around and then we look at her and go, have you got any ideas? And she goes, yeah, I think so, but I haven't got any lyrics. I'll, I'll just try something. And then she'll have this amazing melody, but she'll be reading like a recipe from a Woman's Day magazine or something, you know, and it's just it's just the melodic idea that she's showing us. But it's like, I mean, you can seriously sing about mixing up butter and flour, and it blows anyone away. So, oh, what were you singing about? She goes, I just read a recipe. It was like, oh, man, it's so beautiful. She just, she just has this ability to do that. And, um, um, yeah, so there was stuff that she was really focused on doing and, and harmonies and stuff that she had already had worked out. You know, like Jenny, you know, She's got a lot of vocals to do. There's, you know, all, all the vocals are pretty much single track in the verses, but double track in the choruses. Actually, I think triple track. So like a single in the middle and then a left and right, uh, you know, as a double. And then then there's the harmonies. Sometimes the two, three part harmonies, you know, would basically kind of create them within Pro Tools. He would take Jenny's main vocal and then manipulate it and basically create like an auto-tuned version of the harmony. And then he'd play that to Jenny and she would just sing it back. And she would listen to it once and go, okay, I got it. And then she would just like belt out this incredible harmony. And that's just spine tingling, you know. It's like we're sitting in the control room going, oh, holy shit, what if you did a, can you go even higher than that? And she goes, oh, yeah. So a lot of it evolved in there like that. Um, Yeah, Clint had some great ideas. Nick had some great ideas for the vocal as well. And then, of course, there's all the growls. you know, once again, she's a bit of a beast with that. You know, you have to be a little bit careful, though, because obviously, you know, she really, she's often singing a lot of the growls from her throat and stuff. So it's, it can be kind of damaging. So I'd always try and break those up and just make sure we didn't do too many. Um, but, you know, I do like to get a lot of vocal takes. You probably might have mentioned I'm, I'm, I'm one to try and get the best performance so I can comp around it. She's screaming in it. She's belting in it. She's covering all grounds, you know. That's perfect. Chuck it on the record. It just it, it just evolved into what it became. Um, I really love the vocal sound over the whole album. It's just so close that you know you feel you get to know the singer when when the when the vocal mixes like that. You know, it's a it's a beautiful thing. We, we did, um, um, yeah, a lot of BVs ourselves. There was a couple of gang vocal parts, and I think in Dirt we, we recorded a gang vocal over and over and over, so there was, like, heaps. And then we um, recorded the crowd at Homegrown that year, um, to, and doing the same bit, this crowd chanty bit in Dirt. Okay, so it was a fucking nightmare to sort out because um, now I can remember they were at a gig and and I think the story goes they were like, hey, we're going to do a you know crowd vocal. It's going to end up on our record because I think because we t- we talked about trying to do this and where could we do this and you know I said to them you've got to make sure you get the timing right. 
we we only got a couple of takes and there's always you know someone at the front going oh fuck you you know like so it's trying to like cut out all the you know the rubbish and try and make something of it so there was probably um um quite a bit of reworking done to try and find a few takes that i could maybe pitch shift and then we would have got everyone um singing in the studio around as as a group and, and just layering up as much as possible it was a cool way to get people involved get our crowd on the record sort of thing and uh you know it's, it's good also having um real strings ha- having a you know string section um and that was all done via clint's um hookups in the uk So I have um, a string arranger I use, they're called the Vulcan Strings, and Andy, he, he does a lot of arrangements. So um, we basically, the, the plan was always to sort of put strings on a couple of tracks. On songs like Burning Tree and Fade, he took them back to this string quartet that he records a lot with, and um, he works with their composer, and they basically had a monitor mix of these songs and so we did those we did them at a place called rockfield studios which is in wales it's the oldest res- residential recording studio in the world paranoid was recorded there but I, mean, uh, I think uh, budgie um holy crap who isn't a farewell to kings was recorded there by rush it was just this holy holy mecca of recording studios um bohemian rhapsody was there so so as, as the string section of uh, recording their parts we did a zoom meeting we had you know videos up and stuff so they could watch it and listen to it and hear the sound and and clint was over there and we had his laptop and he walked us around the studio and he's going yeah that's the piano where freddie wrote bohemian rhapsody and we're like they arranged these parts and i think they did about three or four layers of tracks on the on the string quartet so that's turns four instruments into 12 and you've got a mini orchestra at your, at your fingertips right then and there. Once again, a little bit of a leap of faith from the band's part, you know, it's always a bit stressful because it's quite hard to just, you know, tell a string quartet or I think we had five, six players, seven players, maybe, um, you know, to just, Hey, let's just change this and change that. You know, it's, it's um, yeah, but I mean, it turned out great. I mean, I, you know, these string players are great and it's a studio I know really well and I use quite a bit. So it was really quite cool to sort of, you know, get a part of, of history as far as the Rockfield side into that New Zealand record. And, you know, just to have it um, coming from that studio too was just, well, what a feeling. Most certainly as songs develop in the studio, you know, you get a sense for maybe how it might play out over a record the track listing you know that's it's not easy is it it's not easy putting your songs in an order and um, we didn't have an order sussed at the beginning we just had these this collection of songs and and the more we thought about it and the more they evolved in the studio and and became a thing then they they kind of found their they found their place i think you know what does come into play with I guess the album order is always trying to hit you hard with, you know, the singles, the you know, like Start a Revolution and, um, you know, Little Pills and some of those ones that appear sort of early on in the record. And um, 
we were getting management saying, oh, Little Pills is, is your big single. You've got to start with that. It's, it's got to be number one. It's got to be the first song on the album. We're going, no, it's not the vibe we're looking for. Much to our manager's contention, he was absolutely adamant that Little Pills be the first song on We Rise and was seriously, I want to say that the debate went on for days and days and days between emails. And one by one, each member of the band just went, oh, this, I don't want to hate this album before we put it out. I don't want to argue about it. I just, you know, James, if you feel that strongly about it, let's just keep it as little pills. And I, I was the stubborn teenager going, nope, nope, nope. Track one is Elvis Presley Circle Pit and I'll die on this hill. And, uh, yeah, we put our collective foot down and opened it with Elvis Presley Circle Pit. And, yeah, that song has had more more streams than, you know, by a big margin than anything else we've done. It's crazy. So I think maybe being the first track, people go there first and have a listen. It's just a, it's a throat punch, you know. It's like we didn't want to start with the beginning of Little Pills. We wanted to start with something a bit more meaty, you know, you get hooked in by those drums next minute. Pow. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to sort of remember the fine details, but my overall kind of thoughts were... Um, you know how proud I was with you know the vocal harmonies and the layering of that uh, but ultimately I was really proud of how the record was received and how it's you know become you know kind of iconic in a way a lot of people refer to it um, and it was something you know we always always talk about these records that um, you know, everyone wants to do the big famous record, you know, the one that does well. And at the time, you know, the band weren't really sort of, you know, they were making tracks. But for me, it was just going in with another band. And then this band ended up like, you know, selling platinum records and doing all the stuff. And it was cool to be part of that journey. And, um, you know, it's actually way more rewarding doing that than actually getting a job with you know a really well-known band uh, an established band so that was you know probably it for me i'm just proud of what the authenticity behind that album brought to us as you know career musicians it was like we it basically became the catalyst for helping our dream come true we all dreamt of having a number one album and you know, releasing something that connects with enough people to warrant touring around the country and then going to another country and then getting on a festival and all that stuff. But you never think that it'll be your first. You never think it's going to happen when you're 18 years old. We didn't have much of a goal behind just releasing a really cool album, like I said earlier. And so I'm just so stoked that we stuck to our guns and did what we really wanted to do and that it paid off. Um, Burning Tree is something that's just 
it seems to be a song that's has touched a lot of people and um, still get really nice feedback about that. You know, we're playing in the UK and this girl comes up and she goes, oh, I love your song, Bernie Tree, a show in Manchester. And she had blimmin' the lyrics tattooed on her arm. Reality, smoking like a burning tree. And some other people come up and said, oh, when my brother died, we used this song. And, and it's just a, a, a poignant moment that I think we captured really well. So that to me is just, it's, it's always a goosebump moment. Um, I'm really, really proud of the song Covet because I think Nick had um, been playing piano for like one month when he wrote and recorded that. We got him a piano for doing so well at school because he's head boy and he got two scholarships to university. Same sort of thing. He gets it and goes, oh, how does this work? Oh, okay, so bing, bing. Oh, that's B, so that's C. Okay, so this is, oh, here's a chord then. And then, yeah, he was, um, he was, he wrote the song about uh, the, this girl that he was quite smitten with at the time, Covet. And, yeah, that was the last song played on the on the grand piano at, at York Street, as far as I know. And it's just a beautiful, touching little, just a piece of sweet little piano. Um, but, he thinks of music as motifs like that, so it could be guitar or piano or, or something. He just finds these little hooks. So it's a pretty proud moment. Um, and Nick's drumming on Dirt, I think it's outstanding. Um, well, on all songs, really. But yeah, I'm 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 pretty proud of my son on this on this whole album. I'd have to say. Those were the studio stories behind Devil Skins. We rise. Huge thanks to Paul, Nick, and Clint. Links to download or stream We Rise can be found in the show notes, along with how to follow the guys on social media. Make sure to leave a five star review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Studio Stories is a Russell Podcasts production. Go to RUSTLEPodcasts.com for more information.